and welcome to The Sacred. My name is Elizabeth Oldfield, and in this podcast, I speak to people involved in public debates about their values, what has shaped them, and what they've learned about engaging across difference. Before we kick off, I wanted to ask a quick favour. If you like The Sacred, would you rate it, recommend it, and share it on social media? Because it really helps other people to find us. In this episode, I spoke to Ash Sarkar, who is a writer, broadcaster, journalist, and lecturer living in London. She's senior editor at Navara Media, an independent left-wing media organisation, and she regularly appears as a pundit on television and radio. We spoke about her sacred value of human life, being a red diaper baby, rediscovering Islam, and her worries that adversarial debates are shaping us in unhealthy ways. I hope you enjoy listening. Ash, I'm going to kick off with the big meaty question that this podcast circulates around about sacred values. We don't necessarily mean anything religious by this, but it's a way of getting to some of the more implicit things that motivate us as individuals when we take part in public conversations. It's about the principles that we at least try to live by. And when they're pressed on, we feel really compromised. Having had a little bit of time to think about it, do you have a sense of what yours are? Yeah, I do. I think For me, it starts with the inherent value and dignity of human life. Because I remember having this conversation with a bunch of anarchist mates sort of around 2011, 2012. Everything was kicking off in Greece at the time. And it was a time of real antagonism on the streets. So there was a lot of police violence and there were organised attempts hitting back at that. And one of the things that I found really difficult getting my head around, and this is someone who has spent a lot of time reading about political violence and justifications for it, was the idea that you would throw a petrol bomb back. Now, I'm not sitting here and saying I think that's inherently immoral. I think that there's differences between the violence of resistance and the violence of the state. But when I was pushed on it and my friends were asking me, well, go on, wouldn't you do that? I was finding it really difficult to say yes because I thought, oh God, even, you know, that golden dawn voting cop who's been smashing in the heads of leftists and anarchists and people that volunteer and do work with refugees, could I justify taking his life or putting it at risk? Would I be able to look at myself in the mirror after that? No, I don't know. So I know that's uh, not the most original of sacred values, but I suppose it's the one which I go back and forth in my head over a lot. I'm going to take you a bit further back because we, I'd love to hear a bit about your childhood to get a sense of your story and what's formed you. And particularly if there are any religious or political or philosophical ideas that you felt were really present in your childhood that have helped make the woman you are today. So I was, uh, I realised that there, uh, there's a word for this um, that Americans use. I was what's called a red diaper baby. Um, and a red diaper baby is when you're sort of raised by someone with very strong leftist politics. So I hadn't heard that. It's lovely. Yeah, it was a really good phrase, red diaper baby. So my mum was very active in the anti-racist movements of the late 70s and 80s. So thinking about that time where you've got huge amounts of racialized police harassment, which culminates with the urban uprisings in Brixton, Toxteth, 
Tottenham, Handsworth, and she was very much involved with setting up what was called monitoring shops. So this was a way for the community to come together, identify instances of police harassment and brutality, most of which was targeted at working class Black and Asian people and organise some kind of resistance to it. She was also involved with a campaign to stop a practice known as virginity testing, which went on right up until the 1980s at Heathrow Airport. So if you were a South Asian migrant woman and you were coming over to marry someone, it was essentially a a form of state-sanctioned sexual violation. I can think of no other words for it. And so she was done by the British government, done by the British state um, upon a upon arrival uh, at Heathrow. And it wasn't until the 1980s that the practice had been abolished. And it was South Asian women who were leading that fight back. So that was my mum's experience of activism. And she was a single parent for uh, the majority of my childhood. And she worked in social work, which has its own history of anti-racist critique and left-wing critique. And so from a very early age, we were always talking about politics in the house. It was always a really live issue. And she was always giving me things to read. And the most important thing that she gave me to read, and this is also probably why I returned to that question of political violence so often, it was Franz Fanon. So first thing she gave me was Black Skins, White Masks, which was his first book, which was about the experience of racialization and he was a a psychiatrist from Martinique who when he first came to France I think he was part of the French Foreign Legion he discovered his blackness by being face-to-face with racism and so he does this sort of huge breakdown of that experience talks about interracial relationships and the dynamics that play out And I read it at like 13 when my mum gave it to me and I was like, uh, mum, you don't understand. Things have changed a lot. Racism doesn't exist. Like, you can be brown and be a goth now. So I don't see how these stereotypes exist anymore. And then I got to 18 and I was like, oh my God, you are so right about everything, mum, and I'm never doubting you ever again. So for me, that was the starting point with my politics. And the thing about Fanon is that He also takes a sort of religious narrative when it comes to his work, in particular, Wretched of the Earth. Um, He's sort of taken the language of Dante and Milton in order to set out his analysis of colonialism. I think um, you can see a lot of Dante's Inferno in his work in particular. And that was something which I became alert to a bit later on. There's loads of threads there around you studying literature, but I want to pick up the faith one first because you've you've been in the public eye only for a relatively short amount of time at the level that you are now. And obviously I've been reading back with old interviews and lots of people ask you about your politics, but very few people seem to ask you as much about your faith and you've publicly said you're a Muslim. So I'd love to hear what does that mean for you? What does that look like in your life? So it was something that changed a lot over time because Again, as a teenager, and, you know, as a teenager, you're very rigid about things. I'd understood that my mother, my grandmother, and that side of my family were Muslim. 
I understood that my stepdad uh, was a you know, Church of England raised atheist and I understood that my biological dad uh, came from a Hindu background. So there was a lot of mixed marriage going on. There wasn't a particularly uh, strict or narrow sense of faith that was presented to me. But my own sense of rigidness came from, you know, I read Richard Dawkins one time and I thought I knew everything that anyone who had a sense of faith was stupid and irrational and the reason why I felt that way at that time is because I had no need for the comfort and softness and space for reflection that having faith offered. When I was a little bit older, so I think roughly around the age of 19, I lost someone very close to me. And it was my first close-up experience with death. And my first close-up experience of of caring for someone before they died. And instinctively, my thought patterns and my emotions were pulled towards the faith of my mother and my grandmother. I started uh, reading the Quran. I started reading a lot of, in particular, Islamic poetry, the poetry of Rumi, primarily because it offered almost like a thread to follow through something that felt very confusing and illegible. And it was something which felt felt like a space to to experience grief in a way that my up till then secular way of thinking about things just didn't have. And since then, that sort of faith, which is very personal, doesn't involve going to mosque particularly often. It's centered around my family relationships. has become more and more important to me. Do you, as someone in the public eye who describes himself as a Muslim, but possibly doesn't look like the kind of, or act like, or speak like the two-dimensional, stereotypical image of a Muslim woman that we're so regularly presented with in the media, do you find that that your faith confuses people? And do you get criticism, I guess, from more conservative or more publicly pious Muslims or alternatively from your friends who are atheists? Um, I mean, so it's interesting that you put it that way that, you know, I don't look like the stereotypical image of a Muslim because if, for instance, my faith took a different journey and I identified more strongly with the Hindu faith of my father or you know, I stuck with having no faith, I would still probably face Islamophobic abuse on the streets or online because part of being racialized as Muslim has got nothing to do with what you think, what you believe, and everything mm-hmm. to do with what do you look like. So I, th- I think that's an that's a interesting one. But in terms of me not, you know, wearing hijab, in terms of my less than literal interpretation of scripture shall we say yeah that is something which I get a lot of stick for but not necessarily from other Muslims because I think in particular with young Muslims who are active on social media we all have a pretty good idea of the follies the pitfalls the inconsistencies and contradictions that all of us live every day so we're not going to be using it as a stick with 
which to be other people. The people who I get the most stick from are actually conservatives and the alt-right because they think I'm a fake Muslim. (laughs) So there's this whole conspiracy theory about how I'm not actually Muslim. And someone Googled my surname and was like, see, it's a Hindu name. And I was like, bro, if you're getting very confused about you know, Hindu and Muslim contact, let me please introduce you to the history of Bangladesh. Um, (laughs) But yeah, it is something which uh, I get a lot of stick for from that side of things. And in terms of my atheist friends, I don't get a lot of stick from them because the most important word in that setup is friend. So there's lots of bits of our identity or analysis that we don't share with each other, but there's a fundamental respect for who the other person is so we would never we would never get upset with each other about those kinds of things and the other thing I suppose is that they've all got fairly strong sort of post-colonial and anti-racist critiques so I don't see them you know getting really upset that you know I pray when Tottenham is one goal down Mm-hmm. Um, tell me, is there anything in your faith that informs your politics or enriches your politics? Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, and I suppose I've got quite a s- strange relationship to the scriptural aspects of faith because my faith, I feel and I understand, is something which is really instinctive and sort of defies the uh, the the textual But then at the same time, text is really important and it's illuminated my understanding of Islam and in particular Islamic, you know, jurisprudence. One of the things that I find interesting about the Quran and the Hadiths is how they've existed as legal documents. Lots of it is about problem solving, who gets to inherit what property, who's got rights in a courtroom. And while the values of jurisprudence have moved on hugely, particularly in relation to the role of women. At the time, it was groundbreaking. You know, before these texts come along, women have no legal standing whatsoever. And so for me, the thing that I find inspiring about the Quran and Hadith as historical texts, which I know is sort of, you know, is meant to be at odds with having a a relationship of faith, but I do I do see them as historical documents, is that they serve as interrogations of the society in which you live. And I think that that's the responsibility of having faith and having a faith like Islam, which so consistently preaches the value of solidarity with the underdog, basically, um, is that you keep on that tradition of the interrogation of where you are and the sort of structural underpinnings of the so- of the society in which you live. As a woman in public life who is often wading into controversies and I presume therefore getting quite a lot of abuse, how do you hold your, how do you care for your soul? How do you deal with your emotional health? How do you uh, not retreat from public debates in ways that lots of women particularly have and feel tempted to in order to just get somewhere that's uh, less exhausting? If you exist as a woman of colour in this society, your life is going to be exhausting one way or another. And even though I get a ton of abuse, I imagine my life is much less exhausting than someone who is worried that they have to choose between 
seeking out healthcare and the possibility of being deported. Do you know what I mean? So I think that there is an aspect of these conversations and how they play out in which we kind of uh, hold up people in the public eye as the paragons of suffering because their suffering takes place in a public-facing way. And I think that the abuse and the harassment and the racism in particular, it that's just the visible part of an iceberg that everyone's crashing against. So, you know, for me, that's the important thing to preface the whole discussion with. And in terms of, you know, how do I, how do I care for my soul? I didn't necessarily understand the importance of, you know, nurturing when it comes to dealing with exhaustion. The first time I experienced a great deal of far-right harassment was before I had much of a public profile at all. And I just kept looking at my phone, looking at my laptop. And a friend of mine had to actually take both those things away from me and put them on top of his cupboard where I couldn't reach because I wasn't sleeping. And, you know, my brain was just scrambled by the amount of violence I was looking at and reading. And what my friend said is like, none of that is real. It's always going to be there. And it's always going to be a reality of of your existence now. But what is real is you know, me and your other mate in this flat who are making boozy milkshakes and putting on the Anthony Joshua fight for you. And that's where your head needs to be because we're looking after you. You know, feeding that that fire that's online isn't going to help in any way. And so that's that's how I found comfort in that regard. I'm really interested that you use the word violence there because there's something that I sort of circle around and, and wrestle with about... Uh, verbal violence and you said you you've thought a lot about political violence in terms of physical violence but I sometimes feel like the way we have our public debates are in themselves violent and obviously the way what we know from kind of behavioral psychology and child development is that the old chestnut about you know sticks and stones can break your bones but words will never hurt you isn't true that actually words can be deeply traumatic and can wound us and can set off threat reactions in us you navigate you know you're you're a, a pundit and a journalist and you're very much in the heart of all those very adversarial public debates do you worry about how productive it is and how harmful it might be or is it just the game and that's what you've got to do in order to getting to talk about the ideas that you want to talk about oh i worry about that all the time i mean in terms of the violence thing what i had in mind uh when i was just talking was uh, quite literal violence. I was being sent images of burnt corpses and images of rapes, images of my baby niece photoshopped into gas chambers. So it was a, a very directly violent form of imagery rather than just the sort of adversarial thing. But when it comes to the, you know adversarial setups of most political discourse, sometimes I worry that it's sort of conditioned me to view everything as a fight. And I worry that when it comes to having more thoughtful forms of conversation, it's like trying to get Lennox Lewis to dance in Swan Lake. You know, it's just it, body hasn't been conditioned for that, um, you know, over so much time. But the other thing that that's important to bear in mind is that in history, whenever you've had moments of huge political, social, economic change. And I think that's the time that we live in now. You know, it really is 
a conflict which is driven by values as much as it is party political alignment. In fact, I think more so. There has been a huge amount of conflict that plays out in the media, and that's the sort of nature of contesting, you know, the ownership of the common sense, shall we say. Um, it's not a it's not a tea and crumpets conversation um, as much as sometimes yeah. you might wish it was. Um, tea and crumpets to bread and circuses. Tell me a bit about how Navara Media came about. You studied English at UCL and obviously you've said a little bit about your, about your politics developing from your diaper phase and then, and then again in your, your late teens. What drove you to set up uh, with your co-founders an alternative media organisation? So we all got to know each other in that post-2010 tuition fees fight back uh, uptick in activism. So I met Aaron Bastani when uh, we occupied UCL. I was a first year. I think Aaron was in his first year of his PhD. And I really didn't like him at first. Um, But that was the sort of crash course of my like economic politicization, shall we say. That was when I started uh, reading Marx properly. That was when I started uh, reading uh, works by David Graeber, uh, Maria Mazzucato, um, sort of sort of seeing this uh, second life of, of socialism, really. Uh, and then the direct experience was the student movement got defeated. The anti-austerity movement got defeated. And Aaron and James very astutely observed that as the street movements faded away, there would need to be some kind of institutional memory of those politics. So they set up Navarra Media as a podcast at a time where their flat was getting raided by bailiffs like every other week. I mean, they were like, they took broke to a whole new level. And Navarra, as it grew and included uh, articles output as it included more of a focus on race and gender, which is sort of what I brought in from 2015 onwards. It's been a model of how leftist politics have transformed in the last decade or so. So all of us started out as like super insurgent, no reason to engage with the electoral process whatsoever. You know, the only relationship you could have with the state is abolish it to pivoting around to thinking of political parties and the electoral cycle as a meaningful avenue of change. So for me, that's the most interesting thing about Navarra is that we have reflected the thinking of the left in real time. And I sort of wonder how we'll look back on it in 20, 30 years. One of the things that Navarra talks a lot about and that you're best known for is communism and being a communist. Obviously, it goes without saying there's a, a lot of nervousness about the word communism because of the history of repressive regimes. And you seem to usually use it with a, a, another signifier, luxury communism, fully automated communism or lim- libertarian communism. Is that because you're aware of that baggage and you're kind of trying to navigate it and communicate with people who might be hostile? Is it because you feel like 
that's a truer representation of what you really believe. Would you just say a little bit more about those different terminologies that you use? Yeah, sure. I mean, for me, thinking about the different ways in which communism has been understood and practiced throughout history, it's not just a matter of terminology. You have to look closely at Soviet Russia, the horrendous political repression, the starvation in Mao's China, and address those things head on. Because if you don't, I think you're guilty of a particular kind of nostalgia and whitewashing. So it's not just a, um, you know, a matter of terminologically trying to sidestep something. It's actually looking, I think, head on at those histories. Um, Because communism, as it was practiced in trying to, you know, skip out the phase of production, which, you know, Marx describes as capitalism, where you have a industrialized economy, you have a working class, which, unlike the peasantry, isn't tied to the land, is selling their labor power, which is something very specific. In trying to skip all that and accelerate change, what what they ended up with was a grotesque concentration of power in a very corrupt state. So when I'm talking about libertarian communism, it's not simply trying to distance myself from those excesses and from that violence. It's trying to look back at what Marx had identified in terms of his very cold and very, I think anyway, objective analysis of capital uh, in capital and trying to extrapolate a vision of societal betterment, which is as much concerned with the flourishing of the individual as as much concerned with the values of democratic participation, freedom of thought, experimentation, as it is a redistributive project. Um, And so when it comes to the people who I think are most important in order to read, in order to understand this politic, I think looking at the work of the autonomist movement, uh, who also pioneered a a strand of thinking which has been known as libertarian communism, Uh, they called it operaismo, workerism, the combination of insurgent political activity because they were in direct conflict with the communist-run municipality in Bologna. Uh, At that time, police actually uh, killed uh, some of their numbers, most famously Francesco LaRusso, while at the same time challenging the logic of capitalism, using methods such as occupations to confront the state and did so with a great deal of joy and fun and irreverence. So that's the kind of history that I'm calling on, which very much comes into conflict with that big C bureaucratic authoritarian communism. You know, it's not just sort of trying to um, stay neatly siloed off from it. Tell me a little bit about the way being an activist and a journalist works together for you. Because obviously in the traditional model of journalism, it would be understood that there might be a tension there. I 
worked for some time at the BBC, so obviously I have some baggage around that. Um, but do you feel more one than the other? And do you feel they sometimes come into conflict in your work? So firstly, I would say that the sort of writing I do, it obviously isn't reporting. And one of the reasons why it's not reporting is because my point of view is very, very clear. I also don't have a, you know, I I think of a relationship with an editor as being a sort of productive antagonism where they're saying no until you can force them to say yes. And that's what makes a good piece. And the things that I'm trying to shine a spotlight on are more ways of thinking than they are events that occur in the world. You know, it's a way of looking at things. So that would be the first distinction that I would make. But in terms of the way in which in often quite a derogatory way, I'm dismissed as an activist rather than a journalist. Well, Nick Cohen is as much of an activist as I am. So is Raphael Baer. I would argue so is Andrew Neil. The difference is, is because they have had the protection of institutions for so long, they're able to present their biases as merely common sense. I was talking about this actually with my partner the other day because it was a four-day weekend, lost track of what day it was and browsing through the news. He went on the Guardian website as he often does and he was like, oh, it must be Sunday. And I was like, oh, why'd you say that? And he was like, you know, look at the headline. And it was a very anti-Corbyn headline. And both of us said, isn't it remarkable that you can tell not only that this is the observer, but without clicking on it, I know who wrote that piece when it's opinion disguised as factual reporting. So I would argue that, you know, Toby Helm's an activist too. You know, come and join me in the pit down here. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's nice when you know who you are. I want to ask a couple of final questions, which are really about helping the listener as they try and navigate difference and engage with people who disagree with them or hold different political or religious views. And the first one is, what have you learnt? And then is there anything in particular that you'd like people to do or stop doing on both sides of any of the divides that you sit on? And particularly, let's look at the kind of communism one. Those who aren't communists, are there things you'd like them to understand or stop saying? And for your kind of communist friends and colleagues, are there things that you wish they were doing differently in public debates? Mm-hmm. I mean, so the first thing in terms of what have I learned from people who I disagree with, usually the thing that I learn most from people that I disagree with are reading recommendations, because I'm always really curious about where have your ideas come from? How were you politicised? How did you develop your awareness of the world as it is? And it usually means that they've taken a pathway through different texts, uh, different bits of you know, cultural detritus. And I'm always curious about what those things are because sometimes I think we can be very, very reductive and just say, oh, it's simply your class background that's made you the way you are. Well, you know, Engels was the son of a factory owner and his class background, you know, didn't determine his politics. Very clunky example, but, you know, trying not to be too much of a sort of, you know, a vulgar critic of class. When it comes to things that I wish people would stop doing when it comes to talking about communism, I wish that they would read the things that they're criticising. The best example of this being uh, Jordan Peterson and his debate with uh, Slavoj Žižek earlier this week. He admitted that it was the first time he'd read the Communist Manifesto, despite monstering Marxism for you know his army of you know 
racists and Dungeons and Dragons players. He'd never even picked it up before. So the first thing I would suggest is read what you're talking about. When it comes to communists, probably the same, read what you're talking about. And perhaps divest yourself of some of the more conspiratorial and hostile bits of your political discourse. Because the left has become so used to defeat, I think we've forgotten that we actually can convince people. And convincing people means that they've started out in a different place from you. And you have to enter a dialogue with them. So it's not Hmm. all, you know, just hammering them over the head with your perspective. I often, I read a lot of Marion Robinson and she often talks about Marx and Calvin being the most talked about and least read thinkers in history. You might like Marilyn Robinson on Marx, if that's a helpful um, recommendation. I mean, the thing Uh, is, is what I love about Marx, and this is the thing that people miss, and this is what I learned about Marx through doing a literature degree, is that he was a sensationalist writer. That's what the Communist Manifesto is. It's gothic fiction. There are all these little asides in the fragments as well, which are just funny. They're just kind of laddie. (laughs) He talks about the good life as being like, look, I don't really know what happens under communism, man, but I kind of think it's like you're in bed a lot, you're in the pub, that's kind of cool. <laughs> like, you know, <laughs> top lad. <laughs> yeah, you get a sense of him as a person, which I think helps us a lot with these um, what feel like dry ideas. Oh, yeah. And you have helped us understand you a bit more as a person, Ash, and I'm really grateful for you coming on The Sacred today. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to The Sacred. I'm Elizabeth Oldfield. The producer of this episode is Nate Bethay, and it is a project of the think tank Theos. We'd really love to hear your thoughts, whether via Twitter at sacred underscore podcast, or me at Theos Elizabeth, or the sacred podcast at gmail.com if it's easier to write in long form. As always, please do rate and share so others can find the podcast. We're also now available on Spotify, so it's even easier to take sacred with you wherever you go. Finally, if you'd like to know more about the work of Theos, you can connect via the website at theosthinktank.co.uk.